0: And brass. And Carson this is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio Making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday It's his weekly Monday appearance Due to certain circumstances It's occurring on a Tuesday It's Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com Dave Cameron and what follows as Cameron does every week He endeavors to analyze all baseball Of particular note this week Not for nothing, the World Series The World Series is occurring To the degree that one can analyze the World Series Dave Cameron does so course, as he mentions in an article that appeared in the pages of Fangraphs on Tuesday, some of it's just to be enjoyed. Some of it's just to be enjoyed. Now, because of the uh, somewhat sizable layoff between the end of the various championship series, the two championship series, and the World Series, uh, there is some personnel movement for Dave Cameron to analyze. For example, the Phillies are fired as their general manager Matt Clintack from the Angels. Amy McPhail of course, has already been the president. Of that franchise uh, for several months now, what will Clintex will be? And what is the significance uh, generally of that hiring? Uh, I have we have neglected before to discuss Jerry Depoto's role with the Seattle Mariners. He's of course, that club's new GM. I asked Dave Cameron about that. In terms of significances, I ask about uh, Ruben Amaro Jr.'s recent move to the Boston Red Sox as their first base coach. This does not seem like a common thing for a general manager to become a first base coach. What are the precedents for that? I ask Cameron. Also about Dom Brown becoming a free agent and uh, among other various incendiary comments. Dave Cameron also reveals in this edition of Fangraph Studio some heated comments. About one of his fangraph's colleagues.
1: So he probably uh, got drunk and then was stupid.
0: All that to follow. In that conversation with Dave Cameron, uh, before we get to that, I would be remiss, and also in breach of contract, not to mention our sponsor. Our sponsor is Draft. The Draft app. The Draft app. Are you familiar with FanDuel or Draft Kings? draft resembles uh, both of those and that is a daily fantasy game it resembles it less in that uh, it is not currently being examined for potentially questionable business practices uh, also it is different in that it is now it is the first truly mobile app it is the first truly mobile daily fantasy sports game it's a daily fantasy sports game and it's the first one designed for true uh, for mobile apps it is so easy to use it is so easy to use allow me to explain all you do is you pick an opponent a friend of yours already within the draft universe or an internet stranger in that same universe. You conduct a snake draft. Each of you selecting five players. Those players accrue fantasy points and then either you or your opponent has won. Are you confident in your abilities to win? Or do you at least like the odds? Do you like the odds? What you can do is wager real American currency. That's a true fact. Would you like to begin playing this game for free? You can do that. If you have an iOS device, please consider going to the App Store and or if you have an Android device, go to Google Play. You can download the draft app there and begin conducting snake drafts post haste that's what you can do that is a message from our sponsored draft i've already told you about our guest dave cameron so let us continue what is it it is fangraphs audio who does it feature managing editor of fangraphs dave cameron when does it begin right now
1: I didn't I, I threw you a curveball?
0: Yeah, you did. Yeah, baseball metaphor. Yeah, baseball analogy.
1: Uh, yeah. What's the difference between an analogy and a metaphor? Hmm. Yeah. You should know this. Yeah. Didn't you well, teach English?
0: Well, strictly speaking, like a metaphor, you could be like, well, so a simile is a type of metaphor. You'd be like, he's like a, he's like a, he runs like a freight train.
1: Right. But you're now you're answering a question I didn't ask.
0: Yeah, I know, but I'm trying to yeah, Are you that answering a question? question that you know? You're like, I know the answer to this one. So like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm just to pretend like that's what you asked. Isn't that the strategy politicians use all the time? Oh yeah, for sure. They answer the question that they wanted you to ask.
1: Yeah. They just like you ask some, I think athletes do this too, like yeah. you know, those post game interviews, like uh what was it like to hit a home run off Kelvin Herrera in the seventh inning? And they're like, Man, I really love my teammates. They, <laughs>
0: they,
1: he does love this guy loves his teammates. Yeah, I think uh I'm am always amused at how unrelated the answer and the question are in those post-game interviews.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit, I suppose it's a little bit of a flawed um, sort of genre of human interaction anyway. And yet it seems as though,
1: I mean, the broadcasters feel that the alternative would be worse, right?
0: Not uh, yeah. to talk to the athletes
1: right i mean i think like uh on the one in a million chance you get something interesting they're like we're we're, we're willing to sacrifice 30 seconds of airtime, which was going to go to someone else saying something useless anyway <laughs> so we'll just give that up and then occasionally you'll get like johnny Gomes or something and and it'll be fun
0: didn't uh didn't dallas keichel provide like um a really illuminating post-game interview like on field post-game interview recently
1: uh, I might have missed that one. Yeah, not, it, I guess
0: not very recently because the Astros haven't been in it. For them, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I think you know what I'm trying to say. Um, can I ask – I want to ask you a couple of questions. First of all – let's see. Oh, yeah. First of all, here's a strange thing that's happening. It appears as that the Royals have added Raul Mondesi.
1: Yes, to, but not Raul Mondesi Jr.
0: Right. The other Raul Mondesi, Raul Mondesi Jr. The, the brother
1: of Raul Mondesi Jr., Raul right. Alberto Mondesi.
0: Right, right, right and at or is it alberto or at alberto at alberto yeah. right and um so this is a strange thing right because he's never played above double a
1: yeah and he wasn't even that good at double a <laughs>
0: he wasn't that good but he's also uh, probably young for his levels
1: is that possible like, yeah it's, he was 19 this year and so the fact uh, that he was atrocious at double a suggests that like maybe he has a decent future uh but you know Uh, aging curves on what he'll be in his 26 aren't that helpful in the 2015 World Series.
0: Right. The thing that is helpful in the 2015 World Series is that the things that tend to peak early right, are speed and defense. And those, those are likely the only ways he's going to be used during the series.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think realistically it's not going to be used at all unless it's like a blowout or something, right? Like uh, Terrence Score, who he replaced on the roster, like played one game last year, like pinch ran once. Uh, I mean, the Royals already have like a pinch runner in Gerard Dyson who, when they need to pinch run, that's who they're going to go to. So you'd be talking about like – you're basically talking about your backup pinch runner. And then they also have, <laughs> what, Paolo Orlando? So maybe even like a third string pinch runner right. in Montesey's case. Uh you know yeah that's probably not a, a thing that's going to come into play what
0: do often. you think then is the is the the, the logic of the royals for an office or in the or management to to use uh, Mondesi instead of using gore who's you know served that role i mean he's been totally capable
1: well i think they have more outfielders on the roster uh than they do infielders right like uh the, and the you know i think um Carlos, what Carlos Colon is their backup infielder. Christian Colon, uh, Christian Colon, right? Yeah. Uh, so he's not he's not amazing. And if you're so like, say someone goes down, say Ben Zobrist or, uh, or uh, de Escobar gets hurt, you're sticking Colon in the game. You're probably more likely to pinch hit for for him at some point than you are, like say Alex Rios for the runs Kane or Alex Gordon goes down. Uh, well, you're, you know, you're more okay with your, your Gerard Dyson starting and you probably wouldn't necessarily pinch it for him because the defense is so good and there's not a guy on the bench who's a dramatically better hitter. Uh, so I think you're probably less likely to remove uh, Dyson from the game if he has to move into a start um, and therefore you don't need as much outfield depth as you do infield depth if Cologne is forced into a starting role uh, maybe at that point you'd want to be able to pinch hit for him and if, if Cologne was the only shortstop on the roster besides Escobar you literally couldn't do it so this gives them an option where if Escobar leaves the game they can still pinch hit for for uh, Cologne if need be
0: okay and um, what does that do what does this sort of thing do for both for uh, what service time He's on the 40-man roster.
1: What does that, what does that mean? So now that he's on the 40-man roster, uh, he, uh, will have to be optioned back to the minor leagues next year, right. um, instead of just being reassigned. Uh, so. Because he had it,
0: because as a, he still had another, what, year or two of.
1: I think he had another year before he had to be added. Like, uh, you add the guy to the rule, the 40-man roster essentially to protect him from the Rule 5 draft. I don't believe he was going to be Rule 5 eligible this winter. Um, so obviously it takes up a 40-man spot that they can't use on some other major league player this winter. Um, and, and it makes them use up an option year earlier. Uh, but realistically, if he's already in double A, uh, the odds that he was going to spend, you know, three or four more years in the minor leagues and then turn into something probably aren't very good. So like if, if Mondesi burns through all of his options and he's, you know, 23 years old and he's not worth putting on the roster at that point, I mean, then you're probably not losing anything spectacular. So uh service time doesn't count. Like, he's not going to accrue any days of service in the postseason. So it doesn't hurt his arbitration or any of that, that stuff. Um, it does put him on the 40-man roster, so it gives them one fewer spot to use this winner for, you know, their own Rule 5 pick or some kind of waiver claim or something like that. Uh, but I can't imagine that it's going to have a significant long-term effect on the Royals.
0: Okay. I right. am just curious about that. I also saw today, uh, with regard to this World Series coming up, uh, Eno Saris, or you you endorsed – it, it, I mean, I'm sure you endorse a lot of the things that Eno Ayres, but uh, via social media platform Twitter, uh, you noted some points that, um, uh, that Enos Ayres had made in an examination of Edinson Volkes's, I guess, his, uh, some alterations in his stuff and perhaps improvements in his stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, if, you know, maybe three months ago, uh, when the Royals had Jordano Ventura and then they traded for Johnny Cueto, the idea of Edinson Volkes being chosen as their Game one starter, uh when rest wasn't a factor, like when they had everyone available, wouldn't have been something you would have necessarily – uh you wouldn't have seen that coming. That would have been an odd selection. And, I, you know, like, to be fair, Volquez hasn't been that great in the postseason. It's not like they're riding the hot hand, really. Um, you know, he, he pitched okay for a few innings until he ran into trouble against the Blue Jays and, and started walking guys. I think he has, what, 16 strikeouts against 12 walks. I mean, he's not like – Dominating his first few starts, so this isn't something where they're like, "Oh man, this guy's just really pitched his way into the number one spot in our rotation." Uh, Cueto's probably pitched his way out of it, and it's not super shocking that they wouldn't go with him. But to choose Volquez over Ventura is a little bit surprising. Um I do think that uh the fact that he was throwing 98 in his last stuff and in his last start, and the stuff has played up so much, is probably the primary factor. Is if they're looking at it and saying, "Look, you know, we have all this evidence of what Engine Volquez has been." Over his major league career, which has been a, you know, an average or slightly below average starting pitcher. But that was when he was throwing 93, 94. When he's throwing 97 or 98, uh, maybe he's better than that. And, you know, like, even if the results <laughs> haven't been there, the fact that he's throwing this hard, uh, especially if you're gonna, you know, probably not be trying to ask him to go deep into the game, you might only be asking five innings for him. Uh, you know, maybe you're happier with Volquez going, you know, all out for five innings throwing 98 miles an hour than you would be with, you know, Ventura or Cueto at this point.
0: Uh Quaito so two starts ago Cueto was fantastic, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh the most recent start, not so much.
1: He was the the one of the worst starts uh he, or he had one of the worst starts in, in baseball posties history.
0: Right. The so that's yeah, right. So it's bad. Um the What what was his velocity like in the? Well, I know that two starts ago his velocity was excellent. He was like he started off at 94, and I don't think he dropped much uh, below it. In fact, he might have he might have seen his velocity increase a little bit during the course of the game. Uh, What what was his velocity like in the last game? In what do we know about it? It it seemed as though the velocity was there for him. The arm speed was there for him if he wanted to go to it. But maybe there's a is it is it a question of choice or like physical limitations? Do you suppose?
1: Uh, well, I think Cueto's velocity is basically the same as it's always been. We haven't seen like a big velocity decline. There isn't really obvious uh reasons why he's struggled since coming to Kansas City. Uh, you know, you know, I think wrote a piece a couple weeks ago where he looked at it and said, you know, his changeup was flattening out a little bit, and perhaps that's been a, a key reason. Um, the fact that his changeup hasn't been as good, but it doesn't seem to necessarily be related to a health issue. It's, a, I think, the main thing when you look at Cueto what he's done with the Royals and especially in the postseason is he's walking guys like in Cincinnati, Johnny Cueto's thing was no walks, uh, very few home runs, uh, and you know, lots of weak contact. He's he seems to be one of these guys who, um, is very good at limiting hard contact and can run a lower than average batting average on balls in play. Um, uh, and, you know, those things probably go together. The fact that he, like, had really good command probably allowed him to pitch in the parts of the strike zone that uh aren't going to get rocked. And also, you know, he was able to throw enough strikes to not walk guys. In Kansas City, his command just hasn't been there. His walk rate in the postseason, I think, is 10%, which is, you know, not good at all, uh, especially for a command guy. And it's, since he's getting to Kansas City, his Babbit's like 350. So it seems like it's probably more command than stuff. And, and when it's a command issue, I think – we run into limitations of what we can say from the data. Is we don't really know what causes command issues or how to fix them, uh, or how long they last. And I'm not sure anyone does, to be honest. I don't. Th- I think if the Royals knew how to fix Johnny Cueto, they'd have done it by now.
0: Right. Uh, with regard to the Royals as a team, uh, of course, it's not uncommon to hear uh, baseball commentators suggest that uh, what pitching pitching is the thing that gets you to the playoffs. No, pitching
1: pitching and defense wins championships. Pitching and defense wins
0: championships. That's a cliche, yeah. Um, uh, They have quite a bit of the latter, I suppose. But this Royals team is not really uh, – at least their starting rotation is not the exact sort that you would expect uh, to allow a team to get to -to back-to-back World Series.
1: No, Yeah, this is uh, one of the worst rotations that we've probably seen from a team that's going to go to two straight World Series. Uh, I think, you know, when you look at it, like <laughs> Volquez rough. Ventura yeah. and a struggling Johnny Cueto – uh, would then Chris Young maybe as your number four starter or Chris Medlin perhaps? Uh, this is, you know, this is a, just a downright weak postseason rotation. But the Royals are very good at everything else. You know, they're an above average offense or at least an a average hitting team with good speed so they can turn their, uh, singles into runs even when a guy's on first base. Uh, they're an excellent defense, the best defensive team in baseball. And then their bullpen is tremendous. And Wade Davis, you know, might be the best reliever in baseball right now or at least he's up there. So, uh, when you have, uh, you know, a pitching staff, a starting rotation that isn't awful, I mean, this isn't like a disaster of a rotation, but it's, you know, uh, maybe average at best and probably a little bit below average, but you're really good at every other aspect of the game, uh you can be a good team. And it's interesting how, uh, you know, for all the people pointing at the Mets and saying, oh, this is clearly proof that starting pitching is what dominates in the postseason. Well, they're playing off against a team that kind of debunks that notion,
0: right? The, um, the another thing the Royals do incredibly well is make contact. I think the difference between them and the second place team in terms of strikeout rate is like the difference between the, that second place team and a 12th or 13th overall team in the regular season. Right.
1: Um, some of that is just due to their super aggressive nature. Like they don't get into many two strike counts because they're swinging and everything. Like Alcides Escobar isn't just hard to strike out because he makes contact. Escobar <laughs> is hard to strike out because he swings at the first pitch every time. <laughs> right.
0: That's true. He gives himself a lot of opportunities not right. to strike out. Yeah. The uh, it seems as though uh, their contact heavy their contact heavy approach though has been of some benefit to them. And I think Jeff Sullivan looked at some pieces. Uh, looked at the was it Royals versus power pitching as opposed to other sorts of pitching, right. and 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 I don't know does it I suppose does it and, and they were well acquitted by this I suppose, or, or it seems and I guess the idea is, has there been any other study that's been done to look at the the degree to which high contact teams, or at least low strikeout offenses, the if they might have some sort of advantage over power versus power pitchers than than a, than a normal sort of normal team.
1: Yeah, I mean, so, like, I think Ben Lindbergh did a piece of Grantland looking at kind of the same thing. Uh, I think the tricky thing is, like, how you define power, and then, like, you can really run into sam- sample size issues when you're trying to extrapolate against specifically the, the Mets kind of power, right? So, like, you can say, like, oh here's how the Royals do against, like, 95 miles an hour and up, which seems to be kind of the baseline people like to use because it's, you know, uh, not a round number, but it's one of the, uh, the in-between round numbers that people yeah. like to, you know, zeros and fives, right, like people like to use those numbers. It's half, uh, the base 10 system right. Right. Yeah, yeah, is halfway between, halfway between yeah. the next round number. So um, you say, oh, like, this is how they do against 95-mile-an hour fastballs, and it looks okay. But I think Mike Petriello, uh, formerly of Fangraphs, now at MLB.com, uh, looked at some stat cast data and said, like, yeah, they're pretty good against 95, but not like everyone else in baseball. not so good against 99, right? <laughs> like, like, there's a difference between 95 and 98, 99, and the Mets have guys who throw 99, or Noah Syndergaard's case, 100, and, you know, like, um, you know, how you do against, uh, you know, your Ventura, uh, who's, you know, sitting at 95, 96, might not tell you how you're doing against Noah Syndergaard, who's sitting at 98, 99, and, and hitting 100, especially, um, you know, if he amps it up a little bit in the World Series, so. I don't think we can necessarily take uh all those, like, this is how contact teams do against guys who throw 95 and necessarily extrapolate that to the Mets, because I would imagine we're probably going to see uh mostly Terry Collins leaning on his big guns. Like, I think the Royals are going to go pretty heavily to their bullpen to kind of minimize their starting rotation, and I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Collins kind of went, uh, you know, my starters and Jairis Familia, and then, you know, like, Maybe Addison Reed if I have to, or you know Tyler Clipper will eh, maybe pitch a little bit, but I think he's gonna probably lean on like five or six pitchers, and all of them are gonna throw really, really hard.
0: I saw uh, uh, there were some questions with Curtis Granderson, um, you know, some sort of uh, you know pre uh, pre series uh, uh, press opportunity. Um, he was talking about he was asked to talk about. Um, Daniel Murphy, teammate Daniel Murphy, who what has six home runs, game, 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 home runs in consecutive games, yeah. and he uh, <clears throat> he was saying he was talking about n- not only Murphy but also the the, Mar- uh, the Mets hitting instructor Kevin Long, mm-hmm. and I don't know if this is just the sort of thing that's going to you know, if a guy hits six home runs, you're going to not only attribute that to his skill but also the skill of the hitting coach, but it did seem as though um, one thing. One thing that Granderson said about Long was that he emphasizes uh, <clears throat> not, uh, you know, not he emphasizes waiting for your pitch and then doing damage to that pitch. Now, this is not an entirely unique idea. I don't know if it's yeah. unique for the Mets offense in particular, or you know, if they've had a coach saying that before. Is there anything we know about Kevin Long and/or Daniel Murphy that would suggest? Or I guess let's start with Kevin Long. Is there anything we know about him that would suggest he could be sort of? Uh, uh, a hitting guru in the way that that the that the uh, Mets pitching coaches a uh, pitching guru Uh
1: yeah I think like you know when he was with the Yankees he had a pretty good reputation uh especially I think with Curtis Granderson uh there there was a good fit there and, and Grandson obviously did pretty well when he was in New York uh and there's been some like previous uh speculation that maybe Kevin Long knows some stuff and and I think when when he left New York there was um kind of some some disagreement about how much how useful he was and and how much credit he should get for some of the Yankee guys coming there and doing well versus you know the park or just the, the front office identifying uh players who had some remaining upside. Uh we don't really know, but I do think that like to the extent that we can evaluate hitting coaches, which is to say not not very much, uh it seems like Long may be one of the better ones. Uh but I think it gets very tricky to ascribe uh to a particular person uh, you know, a significant change, like when Daniel Murphy is saying after the game, like, I don't know how I'm doing this. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think that maybe we just take his word for it and be like, there isn't necessarily a thing that he is doing differently, uh, or made some dramatic change. I think, like, if Daniel Murphy could hit for, you know, uh, this kind of power, uh, it probably wouldn't have taken him until 30 to figure it out, right? Like, I mean, there are guys who do make significant changes late in their careers, but in general, uh, you're generally, you're, you're better off presuming, uh, that the guy on a current good two-week run, isn't one of those guys until proven otherwise.
0: There do seem to be pitching coaches who have cult status. Certainly, Dave Duncan was one of them. Don Cooper.
1: Yeah, now um, Ray Searidge, probably.
0: Ray Searidge, and yeah. uh, and Dan Worthen himself with the Mets. Yeah, um, I
1: mean I don't going going know going to that, that Worthen is like considered at that level except for the fact his slider, the slider like, well, is sliders. Sliders, uh, yeah. famous, right? Yeah.
0: Um, there the doesn't seem to be, at least anecdotally for me, there doesn't seem to be the same sort of cult status surrounding hitting coaches. Is that? Am I mistaken or is that just how it exi- how it is?
1: No, I think hitting coaches just probably matter less, right? Like pitching coaches like uh you know, Duncan was famous for teaching the two seam fastball and you know getting guys to pitch the bottom of the strike zone and, and really preaching ground balls and pitching the contact. Like you can have a philosophy that you can implant and you know Worthen's teaching all these guys a one specific breaking ball. Uh I think, you know, with a pitching coach you can really make some make some differences. With a hitting coach, you're not going to take the same approach to every hitter. Like, you wouldn't ever say, okay, all of my hitters, one through nine, this is the kind of team we are, you're all going to have this kind of swing because every player needs a different swing based on their body type and their power and their personal skills. So if you try and tell Alcides Escobar and Alice Gordon have the same swing, you're kind of an idiot, right? (laughs) And so, like, pitching coaches can implement a team-wide or organization-wide philosophy much easier than hitting coaches can where hitting coaches, I think, are mostly just trying to like individually work with each guy to do what he does best and maximize his own thing. Uh, so they're kind of, you know, more along the lines of cheerleaders than they are like uh, top-down instructors who are telling everyone what to do.
0: Do you, do you think that it has anything to do with the fact that pitching is a bit of a premeditated act and that you can sort of – you have your time and then uh, and then batting is is a reactionary one?
1: Could be. I mean, so certainly you can you you can say like the pitcher is the one who initiates the play, right? So he gets to choose what happens, or at least he gets to choose what he does, uh, and the hitter has to decide, you know, kind of based on what the pitcher does in order what he, what he's going to do. But I think it's also just true like there are more pitches and pitch types and grips and locations that the pitcher has to choose from, and so therefore there's a wider range of philosophies. Where you know how many swings are there really, right? Like you you can have an inside out swing, you can have a pull power swing. Uh, you can have an uppercut swing. You can have a flat swing. But for the most part, like, there's only so many ways to hold the bat and to put the bat through the zone, uh, especially to produce any kind of, like, quality results. Like, if you decide to, like, tomahawk the ball into the ground, you're going <laughs> to suck. So, you know, you could have a hitting coach whose philosophy was, like, let's tomahawk the ball into the ground, but his team would be terrible. So um, I just think there's, like, a smaller opportunity for coaches to – significantly have uh, their own unique philosophy where in pitching you can really say like look we're gonna throw these types of pitches or we're gonna pitch to this type of location or we're gonna you know pitch backwards and counts like you can do things a lot differently than you can with just you know swinging in the bat through the zone
0: right uh, the last couple of days three four days there have been uh, there's been more personnel movement uh, than there had been uh, over the two or three weeks previous that I, I I'm guessing that that has to do with the fact that uh, Major League Baseball doesn't like teams making announcements during the, on days when there are postseason games, right? So that we have a bit of
1: a window here? Uh, so, I mean, I think that's maybe a small part of it. I think a larger part of it is like free agency begins five days after the World Series, right? So there's, you know, we're now. Two weeks away from the start of being able to sign players. Mm-hmm. So if you don't put someone in place before the World Series and they kind of embargo you from making an announcement or to discourage you at least, uh, you're not going to have a lot of prep time before it's like, hey, we got to talk to agents and really do our homework. So I think uh, a team that goes into November without a guy in charge of their organization is in, is in a little bit of trouble, uh, in terms of planning for the entire offseason. Like especially, um, you know, the teams that uh, are doing well i mean they, obviously the royals and mets are not in off-season mode but they have big enough staff that they can have interns and they can have guys like working on free agency and off-season stuff even as the team keeps playing where if you're a team that's eliminated and you have nothing to do and you don't have someone in charge like getting you ready for the winter to come you're probably not going to get off to a great start right well one team
0: likely off to that sort of start um, in the last couple of days here is the uh, phillies philadelphia what? phillies have hired Wait, what are you gonna say
1: I was gonna say, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that statement, because I think, like, okay, so Matt Clentec's the GM, right? like He was just he hired just, as a GM. Yeah, but, like, Andy McPhail's been there since July. Like, Andy, this is Andy McPhail's team. Like, this is part of the, uh, um the, the degra- degradation of the GM title is Matt Klintick's not in charge. Matt Clintick doesn't get to decide what the teams are going to do this winter or what the Phillies are going to do this winter. Uh, this is Andy McPhail's team, and, and uh, you know, I think the fact that they didn't have a GM didn't necessarily matter because they had someone in charge.
0: Okay, so Andy McPhail... Is the guy in charge of this team, yep. and then we expect that Clintock. This is sort of uh, we've talked. You, you, you just mentioned, it, but I and I also had uh, before he left rudely. Kyle McDaniel and I had some conversations to this effect. The this sort of new model where the the head decision maker on the sort of baseball operations side is is more frequently now being given the title of president. Um, not unlike Theo Epstein in Chicago, right? That's or... I mean,
1: all over the place now. Like it, this is the standard major league structure uh across front offices now is that the guy in charge is called the team president or you know, like in Arizona, Tony Lewis is called the what direct the uh, uh president of baseball operations or director of baseball operations or some some uh weird title that they made up. Uh but yeah, I mean basically there's the GM is now the number two in like most organizations.
0: Right. So what's the uh... So if it's not Clint, what does A, what does the hiring of Clint represent? And then uh, B, what is, what is McPhail's vision for that team? How do you suppose it's going to differ from previous regimes there?
1: So I mean, Clint kind of fits the mold that baseball's gone in recently where he's young and he's got some analytical background, you know, he's 35, and so, um, he's kind of, uh, you know, signaling that the Phillies are going to go more in that direction than they have been, uh, previously where under Rujimura they were pretty, uh, you know, uh, ob- uh, obstinate in being old school. Uh, so I think Cluntech is kind of a, a sign, hey, this is a guy who's gonna kind of bring us up to speed and, and try and catch us up to the analytical side of the game. Uh, but they, you know, they gave McPhail the top re- job for a reason, as they still, uh, are gonna value scouting. This isn't necessarily like a wholesale move away from that, and um, so I think, you know, McPhail's probably, uh, gonna be the guy coordinating with ownership and kind of selling the vision uh, while Clintech will be the guy running kind of the day-to-day operations and, and dealing with the lower level staff. So I think, you know, that's uh, a lot of the separation that teams are making now is having maybe uh, an older, experienced guy who can, you know, deal with executives, deal with ownership, th- deal with payroll, those kinds of things, and then having a younger guy who he can groom and kind of turn into, you know, a future organizational leader uh, who handles more of, like, the dealing with the coaching staff, dealing with the players, uh dealing with, you know, the the assistants and the guys running baseball ops and player development. Um, and so they've kind of split the job in two, which, you know, might not be a bad idea.
0: The, um Let's see. Oh yeah, you know I I've neglected to ask you ever about the hiring by the Seattle Mariners of Jerry DePoto, who is former former Angels GM,
1: yeah,
0: um, and how, and what that might mark in terms of the a new uh, a new vision a new direction for that club.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's any question. Jerry DePoto is very different than Jack Sorensic. And, uh, you know, he's going to do things a lot differently. He's already, uh, cleaned house in the minor league system. They fired a lot of coaches, uh, and, and, uh, you know, kind of the, the player development staff has been radically overhauled. Uh, they brought in, uh, uh, Andy McHale or McLean or something like that, uh, who was previously with the Rockies under kind of like a mental skills coach label where uh seems to be very heavily into, um you know, kind of uh, instead of focusing on the physical tools uh, and focusing on, you know, kind of a player's um athletic abilities, you know, kind of tapping into the mental side of game, game, uh, which has, you know, been one of the big problems for the Mariners. The Mariners have had a lot of guys who are physically skilled who get to the major leagues and don't do anything. And so I think uh, DePoto is going to focus probably – Uh, a lot more heavily on the mental side of things than Zarensic did, who is, you know, Jack Z, I think, famously was very into physical uh, abilities and kind of just, uh, this guy's talented, and and so therefore he's going to be good. Um, And I think, uh, you know, DePoto's certainly more analytical than than Zarensic was, so um, I do think this is an organization that's also kind of playing catch-up a little bit and trying to move, uh, you know, a little more towards the analytical side of things.
0: Is Is that a club... Uh, or, or no, with regard to DePoto, it seems as though uh, I, I remember hearing that perhaps uh, some of his influence was undercut in uh, Los Angeles by the combo package of uh, Mike Sosa and Artie Moreno. Is that is that generally regarded as the case?
1: Yeah, I mean he basically lost a power struggle, right? Like Socha has been there for a long time. He was there before DePoto got there. Uh, him and, him and Socha didn't get along very well, and it seems like at some point DePoto went to ownership and said, look, I need you to back me on this, I need to be in charge. And Moreno said, like, no, no, I'm not gonna do that, uh, you, you know, you have to work with Socha under the current kind of power arrangement, uh, where he gets, uh, you know, more say than almost any other manager in baseball, and, and I think DePoto at that point just said, well, I can't work under these conditions, I'm out.
0: Okay. Yeah, there's some conditions under which it's difficult to work. Boy, do I know.
1: Uh yeah right I would assume that uh you know I'm uh, the Mike Fisher in your analogy,
0: yep. which well, again
1: analogy metaphor uh we we still haven't an answered yeah we
0: we'll, we'll get to it I'm yeah. sure we'll get to it uh, we were talking about the Phillies their their former general manager um ha, is now a first base coach for the Boston Red Sox remember tomorrow Jr. that seems uh that seems uncommon to me that a general manager moves to a field position. And not like manager, but is actually just coaching a
1: base. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I mean, if, if we're being honest, Ruben Amaro is probably never getting another GM job in baseball. I mean, you know, his track record in Philadelphia was not very good. And the type of executive that he represented was the kind that, you know, baseball is moving away from. And they're moving more towards, you know, necessarily uh, uh, college education and mathematical uh, smarts and less towards, you know, play, playing time in the major leagues and, um, you know, professional experience as a baseball player. So, um, the skills that Amaro has are probably more valued in coaching and on the field staff than they are in the front office. And I think if Amaro wanted to continue his career in baseball, this probably isn't the, is, is a good way to continue it. So I think kudos to him for, uh, you know, kind of swallowing whatever pride would be uh, remaining after saying I was running an organization and now I'm just going to be a base coach. Like there's a guy who clearly just likes to be in baseball and wants to work. And um you know I think we have to tip our hat to him and say you know uh, this is a you know good for him for being willing to take the job.
0: What's the, what's more prestigious, first first or third base coach? Uh,
1: is I know. I, I mean third base coach gets mocked more for like sending guys home when they shouldn't. Like higher stakes like, this, maybe. Yeah, like a first base coach like. You know, you just kind of stand there and kibitz the player when they reach base. You don't actually ever really do anything. You yell back on stolen base attempts, but you know, if a guy gets picked off at first base, no one blames the first base coach. So third base coach gets crap when he screws up. First base coach kind of uh under the radar.
0: Okay, all right. So well, that sounds like, that's the one I would mind. A former a former player of these of those same Phillies, the Phillies of which Ruben Amaro was the GM, Dom Brown has elected to become a free agent.
1: Yeah, was, in other words, he uh, the Phillies put him through waivers, and every team was like,
0: every team, Right, so he went through waivers, and every team was like, yeah, well, it's because he's owed money. Why? So I guess it seemed it seemed like you need to think, first of all, because at one point, no, not that long ago, Don Brown was a top 50, a top 25, and then a top 10 uh, a prospect.
1: Yes, he was a very overrated prospect.
0: He was a very overrated prospect, but in the yeah. meantime, he has hit 27 home runs. He did that one year. Yeah. And uh, his last couple of seasons have not been particularly great. But of course, one of the reasons he was given he was given playing time was because, so it, he, I think he I think he recorded like a negative 1.7 WAR at some point. Yeah. And the thing is, you have to be good at some point to be given that much playing time to be that bad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but now this exact um, this exact course of events it doesn't seem like it's, it happens a lot. Or is it only notable because it's happened to Dom
1: Brown? No, Dom Brown is Delman Young 2.0 I mean, I think you could look at it and be like This is the same career trajectory, right? Where you have a uh, a guy who is a very highly rated prospect uh Based on physical abilities And maybe not so much minor league performance Who uh, got to the majors and wasn't very good for quite a while But people kept making excuses for why he wasn't very good And then he had one good season and people were like, ah, look, he's finally turning into the player that we thought he was going to turn into. And then he went back to being terrible. And Mm -hmm. I mean, this is basically Delman Young's career all over again. Uh, and Delman Young has bounced around as like a bench guy, uh, part-time DH for, you know, uh, most of the last five or ten years. I think that's probably Dominic Brown's career as well. I mean, he's like not a very good defender. Uh you know, he doesn't have enough power to justify the things he doesn't do very well, he doesn't run that well, uh he doesn't draw many walks. Like, you know, he's a bat only player whose bat isn't that good. So um, you know, maybe he finds a niche for a couple of years in the American League is like a, you know, three hundred, four hundred a bat guy and, and taps into his power a little bit and becomes an okay part-time player. But I mean like this is the kind of prospect that, you know, um prospect analysis fails on probably more often uh than any other type is, you know, guy who when there's you know scouts are sold on the bat but the bat is really hard to project and there's nothing else there. Uh when the bat doesn't play, you know, he's basically a worthless player. And so, you know, sometimes these guys work out and they're as good a hitter as the scouts expect and then, you know, sometimes they're Dominic Brown or Delman Young.
0: He just he has a body though that you would expect to be a very good uh athlete slash baseball player.
1: Right? Yeah. But he's not.
0: <laughs> he's tall. He's tall and strong and lean. He's all lean and tall.
1: Right. Yeah. I guess the, Dominic Brown is a good example that those things maybe don't matter as much as people would like them to matter.
0: Jason Hayward is, is that, and he's a great player.
1: Right but jason Hayward is not, is is not great because he's a good athlete right, like Jason Hayward gets fantastic routes on the ball or gets fantastic jumps, and he takes really good routes, and he's a really good base runner because he has good instincts like these are all the things that dominic Brown is not
0: yeah he's uh, a, he's a good yeah Hayward is Hayward is a really interesting player right because I remember what is a nineteen year old uh there was a lot of conversation about him because of the raw power. Yeah. Uh, he hasn't topped 15 home runs the last 3 years, but he's actually those have been what he's had at least 2 of his 3 most valuable years over the over that span.
1: Yeah, I mean he's basically turned into a very different player than what he was supposed to be coming up as a prospect. But and it's still you know, working though. Still, he's turned into an excellent player, but an excellently different player.
0: All right. Yeah, it's interesting. Okay. Uh that's almost everything. Oh yeah, I just I don't know if this is a, of any interest to you. The Red Sox have officially have officially let go released John Denny. Do you remember this guy? Mm, no. John Denny is the Red Sox prospect who got pulled, who got arrested twice in one day when he was in... I mean, it's terrible. He was a young man when it happened, but he made some really bad decisions. He made two of mm. them in the same day. He got arrested... I think he got arrested for drunk driving, or at least arrested while driving, and then he went back to the police station and, and took his car away, and then he told the police... I forget which time, if it was the first or second time they arrested him, that he made more
1: money than, than they would ever see. It's not usually. Uh, easily... Yeah, I think. uh I, I mean, not that I'm an expert on this, but I think being drunk also makes you stupid. Yeah. So, good. so he probably uh, got drunk and then was stupid.
0: Yeah. Well, he was also he was uh, he was also underage at the time, you know, I believe. Yeah. He well, 19... he, could have,
1: he could have been stupid first. Like in this case, maybe the stupidity yeah. caused the drinking.
0: Yeah. It's fu- it is funny it it didn't uh, it didn't seem like it worked out too well for him I mean the point is uh, um, you shouldn't uh, don't uh, don't tell don't tell police how much you make I think is one of the, how much you, plus he also lied a little bit now he, he something makes like three million dollars a year but I don't think he'd ever uh, no he, he signed for eight hundred
1: seventy five if, if he like if he uh, made three million dollars a year I would know who he was <laughs> that's a good point. You don't know everyone who makes three
0: million dollars a year. In baseball, probably. In baseball, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think like
1: if there's a baseball player making three million dollars a year and I don't know who he is, then I'm not doing my job. How,
0: how much money is Bobby Bonilla making this year?
1: A million. He's a million. He's making, making a million in perpetuity, basically, or till 2025 or something.
0: What's the what? What is the highest paid baseball player who's not in the league anymore? Like still collecting checks somehow.
1: Uh. Um, if you don't know, it's fine. Right? Yeah, I mean, offhand, I don't know. It feels like maybe there was, like, uh, uh, I don't know, Cliff Lee, maybe? Like, uh, is he not in the league because he's probably can't come back from his current injury? He's going to, they're going to pay, the Phillies are going to pay him $12.5 million to go away because they have like a $27.5 million team option on him next year. So instead, they're going to cut him a really big check to make him a free agent and then he'll probably never pitch again.
0: That was a, actually, because I, I had sort of, he had fallen off my radar. It seems, what, he, he, he decided, I don't know if he decided for himself, it's the Phillies, Agreed with him, but he decided not to pursue surgery.
1: Yeah, I think he knows his career is over, and you know, if your career is over, you know, maybe you're less interested in having surgery.
0: Well, they sent, and they, then they just sent him home. They, and then like there would be like a periodic checkup, and you're like, yeah, I'm still not, I still don't feel. Good. Yeah, still
1: broken. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but do you think that? I mean, did the did the Phillies have any leverage at that point to either be like, well, okay, you either do this, um. Or I guess they couldn't say the or, right? I mean, what's, what was I the or? I mean, you can.
1: I think if you're paying someone, you can force them to rehab. But getting into like, what is the? I'm gonna. It probably wouldn't be that hard for Cliff Lee to be like, yeah, my my doctor tells me that the best way to rehab is to sit at home. I'm like, just let my elbow try and heal. So I'm going to opt for rest instead of surgery. And you can't really like, oh, no, we're going to make you go under the knife. Like, you can't force someone to have surgery. Right. Um, so I would imagine it would have done far more harm than good, especially because they knew they were going to buy out his option anyway. Like, just let the contract end and say, uh, rather than force you to undergo surgery you don't want and get a ton of bad PR and, you know, uh, hurt our... Um, you know, influence on future players. Uh, we're just gonna accept the fact that you don't want to do this anymore, and uh, we'll continue writing you checks because you pitched well for us for a while.
0: Yeah, and then you get in, in uh, and then you got hurt. And Cliff Lee was not—he was not about to uh voluntarily retire during that period.
1: I mean, yeah, they're not gonna give up. Thirty forty million dollars. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I guess that's true. You probably find a good use for it. I'm sure it'll be Yeah, there. I mean
1: I think even if you have a lot of money, you can always find something out to do with another forty million.
0: Yeah. Give it to someone.
1: Yeah, right. Even if you don't want it, maybe you would rather you choose who gets it rather than the Phillies. <laughs> yeah. All
0: right. I guess that's uh, so right. Smart to sign a guarantee contract. Good job, Cliff Lee.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh
0: anything glaring that we've omitted to consider here?
1: Uh, well I don't think we talked about the World Series that much. Well we looked at, the, we did some previews, I don't know. It, we talked about like Raul Mondesi and, and... Yeah, it hits. gets
0: too, it gets too granular for me though. It's like, yeah, these two teams are gonna play.
1: That's kind of the piece I wrote today, is like, uh, just enjoy it. Like, the games are gonna be whatever they're gonna be, unless trying to not draw any conclusions, uh, and I think, you know, that's not necessarily great for traffic, so like, I understand why a lot of places are like, here's my prediction, or here's the, you know, here's what the keys to the series are, or whatever. But like, really, like, uh, unless you you think you can see Daniel Murphy coming, or, you know, like, Mark Lundke or something, like, the key to the series is, Play better than the other team.
0: Yeah. If Mark Lemke plays in the series, that would be
1: unexpected. I bet if anyone would sign him, it would be the Royals because he makes contact.
0: Yeah, that's true. Well, what, every player before, uh, what, like, like all the players from the 1980s made contact as well. It's true. Right. So
1: maybe we'll get a whole bunch of like, uh, you know, Vince Coleman will make a reappearance. And Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right, well, we did it. I think we did it. Okay. All right, well, why don't you stick around for one second? In the meantime, though, thank you, uh, thank you, Dave Cameron.
1: You're welcome. All right,
0: that has been Dave Cameron, Managing Editor of Fangraphs.com. Of course, it's Dooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.